Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed wherever you are using the Newcastle Libraries app. So why not put borrowing at your fingertips? We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land on which we live, the Awabakal and Waramai people, who were the first storytellers of this nation and are the proud survivors of more than 200 years of continuing dispossession. This is the Broken Chain series presented by Newcastle Libraries Real and local artist Damien Lenane. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed throughout the series are solely attributed to the host and guests of the program and do not reflect the official policy or position of the City of Newcastle. And welcome to Broken Chains, a prison podcast. My name is Damien Lenane and I was sentenced to two years imprisonment in November 2015 for crimes the sentencing magistrate described as vigilante action. Broken Chains is recorded on the traditional land of the Awabakal people and I'd like to pay my respects to elders, especially considering how greatly our prison system impacts on Indigenous people to this day. On today's episode of Broken Chains, we're going to be talking to Richard about life after release and difficulties finding employment. Yes, it was broken. Hi Richard, thanks for being on Broken Chains today. Why don't we start by telling us a bit about yourself and your story, whatever you're happy to share with us. Yeah, so, I mean, my name is Richard Brooking. I was born in New Zealand, moved over here when I was five. I went to prison nearly eight years ago for manufacturing a dangerous drug. Uh, or producing dangerous drugs, I think they call it. And then there's a host of um, charges that come without possession and uh, possession of utensils to be used. So, and then I went to prison after that, and I was quite lucky with it was my first offence, and what was there was wasn't deemed to be commercial. So I got six months um, with a with a head sentence of two years, a little bit more than first offence for. There was quite a lot of equipment there and quite a lot of secondary precursors. I got six months. I did most of it on R&R, and it was more like being in prison. I was only a short stay, so it wasn't that challenging for me, but it was the, the transition like afterwards was really, really, really difficult, like trying to find employment and trying to reintegrate back to society. I, I struggled with, you know, and, and many people do, um, I'm finding out. It's interesting to hear you got a two-year sentence but only did six months because I got a two-year sentence as well, but I, I only did 10 months and that's an unusually short non-parole period for a two-year sentence and uh, I didn't realise that anybody out there had actually had a shorter one, but but there you go. Yeah, yeah it was normally a third, but I did a lot of courses in, in, in remand, didn't contest any charges, just went straight through, so that sort of went in my favour. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I had actually heard that once before. I'd forgotten that, that uh, it's a one-thirty-year sentence you spend inside in uh, Queensland. Here, I, I got arrested in New South Wales, and here it's uh, customary that your non-parole period is three quarters. It's interesting how, you know, we're, we're different the systems work, even like, you know, states next to each other. Yeah, and once you're in the system, you're, you know, you're forever, you know, burdened by it, you know, encumbered by it. It's hard to wear around. It's hard to do anything. Um, I'm in the process of going through getting my blue card. 
a lot of people who get down the wrong path and come from troubled backgrounds like myself, they want to work with you and, and help you to experience the same thing. And lived experience is such a, a key component of helping other disadvantaged youth, but yet they're so restricted and they, you know, they can't work with them. I got knocked back my first time uh, simply because they thought I would feed uh, youth drugs, which is completely ridiculous. But this time around, I've done you know uh, drug testing and all that sort of stuff. So I'm hoping to get it. But it just every knockback from all these sort of things makes you feel like you know low life and all that sort of stuff, which you already carry a sense that around with you anyways. People ask, often ask me what parole is like and everyone's parole is different and uh, my conviction wasn't related to drugs at all so I didn't actually, I didn't have any of that uh, drug testing and stuff but um, I can imagine if that's what you're in for then uh, that's what they're going to be a little like maybe even unnecessarily over paranoid about. can definitely see why, uh, why that's been a bit of a barrier for you. When, remind me when you got out again? Been nearly eight years ago so I got out just about seven and a half years ago. How long did it take you to um, find a job after you got out? Oh, well, I went straight into study. Like before I got uh, busted, I knew that you know things were changing and it, it wasn't sustainable. Like it's not something that you know I wanted to bring my kids up in crime. You know, if if I have kids, or, you know, down the track. And so I knew something had to change. And when I got out, I, I used that opportunity to you know to do what is classified as normal. You know, go to university and all that sort of stuff. And I worked just doing labouring jobs here and there while I went through uni but after uni when I had to enter the workforce it was so challenging because of my history like it's already a competitive market as it is and that history is just a, a thing for them to say no nah, you know if they, if they got 70 resumes they're instantly just going to get rid of you if you've got a history and also there's other factors like I didn't have a network like because I spent a fair amount of time involved in in that world I didn't have a network that allowed me to, you know, enter into that, the employment, the commercial labour pool easily. Mm. You know, I didn't have friends who were working and all that sort of stuff. And people overlook these sort of things, but they are actually so important to, you know, integrating back into society. Um, and, and how do you do that if you don't have friends to say, oh, I know a job that's going. Damien's got a job doing this and that or, or something like that. And if you don't have that network, it's just another layer of challenges that, you know, a lot of um, people who are involved in, in crime for a long time will, will completely understand that. You know, how do you overcome that? I, I remember I went for this interview because I did my undergrad in business and I majored in real estate and property development and went for an interview as a real estate agent. It was with a pretty good company. And the first interview, they said, look, you know, you've got the job, you've got the right degree, we like you, you just got to meet the bosses as a matter of process in the second interview. So, and in between the, the second interview, they did a criminal history check. And I was up front with them and said, you know, look at the history, this is what happened. And then I went to the second interview, it was very brief. There was a few jokes about Breaking Bad and stuff <laughs> in there. And then after that, they just said, oh, look, you're not right for the job, you know. And, and I'd already been, you know, told I had the job. So, I was shattered by that, absolutely shattered. I thought, you know, this is my chance to, to reintegrate. You know, it's just kicking the guts. <laughs> it was terrible. I can imagine uh, how much about that would be, especially if like definitely had the impression that they were going to give it to you. Like, yeah, I think it's uh, it's hard enough to get a job as it is. I remember like I, I struggled trying to find employment for years before I went to prison, and that's probably in, impacted indirectly a bit to why I committed my crime because I, I didn't feel like I had a lot uh, going on for myself. I remember when I got out, 
one of the first jobs I applied for was uh, like an unskilled job for a bank. I decided I was going to be completely upfront. I actually, uh, I had a friend inside who told me he tried to, you know, sneak in and, and be dishonest about it. But then the, the company he worked for, like did the criminal record check and he got fired in just a couple of days for being dishonest. So I decided I'd be honest and I, I was filling out this online application for this job and I was expecting to get to the criminal record part and I got to it and it was it was like question eight or something on the questionnaire like a really long answers. It's like, do you have yeah. a criminal record? And I ticked yes. And I was expecting a box to drop down to explain, like, yeah, yeah, well, can you explain what happened? But instead, it just uh, yeah. like shut down. It was like, um, I'm sorry, you're not eligible to apply for this position. I was just automatically ineligible. They, they wouldn't take my own personal story into consideration. I mean, when, when I tell people what I did or like why I did what I did, most people are pretty understanding. But I mean, you, you don't even get that opportunity to explain yourself because they just, they just see that stigma of the criminal record and, and that's and the interview's over before it begins, really. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's the, the biggest problem vendors have is, is perceptions. Uh, when rehabilitating, like the evidence shows that marital status is, is the biggest reducer of recidivism right. and then employment is the second. Mm. But overall, you know, it's community perceptions that that lack of willingness to, you know, recognise that most of these people aren't the worst stories they see on TV and that there's actually a lot of talented people in there and people who have come from extremely traumatic backgrounds um, as you remember, I mean, you just got to talk to people in there and realise that, you know, there's one thing in common. 99% of people come from, you know, a parent who um, had troubles, you know, or substance abuse around the house or, or traumatic experience, PTSD, um, mental health issues. It's just it's just rampant in there. You know, the, the population or the, the general community, they just they don't see us that way. It's more of a like, you're a bad person, you, you are labelled bad forever. Around the world, you do sort of get a sense of, slight change um you know and you hope it sort of uh, echoes into australia as well i remember reading a um report by the united nations general assembly a couple of years ago because i've been quite interested in prison related issues since i got out i uh, got out <laughs> um september 2016 it would have been and the united nations concluded that the reason why the prison system is you know such an absolute mess is because the main point is the media, and it's the same reason why people are more afraid of flying than they are of driving a car, even though it's 300 times safer to fly. And the reason for that is because <laughs> every time there's a plane crash, it's all over the news and the media has an absolute field day, whereas a car crash isn't really even a news story anymore unless, you know, like 10 people die. And it's the same yeah. with the prison system. Like every time there's a murder or a really heinous crime, it's all over the news, whereas Joe Blow getting uh, four months for tax fraud is not a page one story. And there's this perception that everyone in there is this violent and dangerous person. Don't get me wrong, I, I met a lot of dis undesirable types well, in my, my time inside as well. But I mean, some of the nicest and kindest human beings you know, I met in prison and you know, some of them made mistakes and uh, some of them had like uh, were just dealing with trauma and then that's what happened to me and then some of them were just in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, like I met one guy who um, he just fell asleep behind the wheel he was exhausted coming back from someone's funeral and ran off the road and, and, and killed someone complete accident but yeah he, here he is in prison for years now because he um, something that essentially could have happened to anyone really yeah absolutely absolutely yes it was broken. 
I identified with what you said about uh, going to uni um, straight after prison because I actually wanted to start a master's degree in there in New South Wales. It's uh, very difficult to study in prison because you can't get personal access to a computer for the purpose of studying. But I decided I'd compensate for that by uh, going back to uni when I got out, partially because I wanted to, but partially because I thought my chances of getting a job would be pretty low. And But uh, that way, uh, when I did get try and get back into the workforce, I wouldn't have this big gap on my resume. Like, what have you been doing for the last three years? Well, I've been doing a master's degree. And I, I figured that would kind of like a foolproof plan if I couldn't find a job. And uh, thankfully, I did find a job. The stigma, the worry about the stigma of finding a job was actually you know, partially my motivation for going back to uni. Um, do, was that the same for you at all? Or were you just going to university anyway? Or? Yeah, so that, that would have been a driving force. Like I had other reasons as well, but whether there were, you know, there was, there was an underlying fear of entering the workforce, that's for sure. Because of, you know, the amount of knockbacks you get, that situation with the interview and, and the second interview saying no and joking about breaking bad and all that stuff. I set up a finance company, you know, to try and get income and, and integrate that way um, because I had a friend who was a licensee. He knew about my criminal history and I could work as a broker under him. So I did all the training, I got all the licenses, I joined the governing body. Initially they said no, I appealed it, they said no, and I went to another governing body. They they agreed to meet with me, and once they met me, they let me um, have it. Then I got my insurance and all that stuff. But when it come to getting an aggregator, which as a new broker you need an aggregator because you need that training and information, I simply, no one would accept me, and I wouldn't even be able to get an interview. Um, like they wouldn't meet me and say, okay, look, tell us about your story or anything. Well, that was simply like, no, you, you, you will not get registered with any of the banks, so therefore we as an aggregator won't take you on. And that was it. Like, I couldn't appeal that. Um, I'd wasted money on it. You know, it was another a bad experience to, to add to it. So, you know, you're absolutely right. Studying was a, a safety net, you know, it was a way to to feel that you contribute, you, you know, you're, you are on a path of, redemption you know you are improving yourself and not having to you know look for full-time work and all that sort of stuff so I agree that would be a factor but studying the thing I like about studying was it builds your you know your self-assessment of redemption so the more I study the more I thought you know what I've I've done a little bit more you know I've, I've educated myself you know I feel as though I can be a bit more honest about my story and potentially that would echo in the people you talk and 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 the people who will interview you, um, they will see that you are more confident in your story and probably more likely to, to hire you as well. But I, I did a project as part of my master's. I did a master business major in philanthropy and not-for-profits. And there was a, a project about prison industries for Queensland Corrections, so a collaboration between uh, the union and Queensland Corrections. And I went for that one, obviously. And I found it absolutely fascinating looking at you know, my situation and my progression to crime through an academic lens, like what the research says. So sort of you, you look at your own situation from an outside sort of educated or, or research perspective, which was was so fascinating. And then I can understand completely how some of the, the people who have been to prison get involved in criminology and, and find it very, like, fascinating, um, you know, sort of essentially reading about themselves that, going to education as a safe haven, I believe, you know, it, it ended up paying off in the end. 
Yeah, no, I can uh, definitely appreciate that. Identified with what you said there about the trouble with the aggregators and stuff, because my first proper job after I got out of prison was the massage. And uh, I, um, I'd been doing that for years on and off. When I went to get back into it, I reapplied for my insurance. One of the questions was, do you have a criminal record? And I, I ticked yes. And I, um, I wrote in the email why, but they, they just sent me like a generic stock, like, you know, template reply. They're like, I'm sorry, you fall outside of our scope for practice. And I actually called them yeah. and the, the guy, he was actually, um, you could hear the frustration in his voice. Like he wanted help, but like he, he wasn't allowed. He's like, look, he's like, I'm really sorry. I, I'm not allowed to comment on this. All I can tell you is that you've been rejected. Luckily I shopped around and I found uh, a different insurance company that were willing to take me. But I mean, yeah, if that second insurance company hadn't taken me once they'd listened to my story, um, I would have been, yeah, I wouldn't have had that job and I might've actually, um, Oh, I did get get offered one job kind of after I got out, which was a friend of mine, uh, yeah, he said, keep in touch. And he called me and after he got out, I'm like, I'm like, what are you doing, man? He's like, oh, I'm selling Coke. Do you have any contacts in Newcastle who'd wanted you? Is that something you'd like to do? And I'm like, no, no not at this stage. Thank <laughs> you. I'd like to, but uh, yeah, it's like if I hadn't have, if that second insurance company hadn't have uh, let me get a legitimate job. Um, I, I mean, I still don't think I would have taken up his offer, but it, it would have at least been tempting to, to not be broke. And, you know, like, cause I mean, I yeah. don't have a lot of family as well. So, I mean, um, risk of homelessness has been a problem for me, um, like um, early in my life. So, I mean, I can definitely understand why people just go the easy option of back into crime rather than like, you know, uh, trading, uh, going against the tide and trying to struggle and prove to companies and stuff that you still have self-worth as a, you know, have worth as a human being trying to find a legitimate job because it, yeah, it, it's, it's really not easy. You're really behind the eight ball and just trying to break even sometimes. And yeah, I can definitely appreciate anyone else who's, you know, found that frustrating as well. Absolutely agree with what you're saying. And it's, it's so hard. And it's also it's the little things that, you know, people take for granted, like someone who, a normal person who doesn't have a record, you know, for example, them becoming a broker, they don't worry about these sort of things. Like, you know, it's just, oh, if I call up an insurance company, I get insurance or, you know, there's many, many different, you know, situations and scenarios where you just held back and they're not, like people aren't striving to find solutions for people. You know, the government certainly isn't mm. striving to find solutions for, you know, prisoners when you look at the research, you, you sort of realise that you know, prison is a, is a one-stop shop for social problems, uh, mental health, homelessness, um, lack of family support. You know, that's sort of their solution. You know, they'll eventually do a desperate act, um, you know, or they come from substance abuse um, household. You know, they'll do a desperate act and end up in there under control, which is a shame, you know. And, you know, like we both said before, is this, I will not say that prison evolution or you know, completely getting rid of prisons is is a good idea. I think we need humane lockable facilities. I think that's something we need. But at the moment, they're just, they are a one-stop shop for social problems and, and that is what they are. You know, there's a very small percentage who need that sort of restraint where a lot of them, a little bit of social support, a little bit of community support, moving towards more of a welfare sort of mentality as opposed to a, um, uh, the word escapes me now, as opposed to like punitive, punitive measures, you mean like um, punitive? Yeah, that's the word. Thank <laughs> you, Damien. <laughs> you got my back. I understand because um, I was there was an article uh, not not long ago I saw here in Newcastle like welcoming 
all these new police officers as a way of like tackling crime. And I'm like, but police don't stop crime. You, you call the police after the crime's being committed. You know, they, they clean up the mess. You know, like police don't stop crime. You know, social workers support crime. Drug and alcohol rehabilitation centres support, uh, yeah, um, reduce crime rather. You know, mental health support and like youth outreach programs reduce crime. Yeah, this is what stops crime. And we've, and yeah, I agree with you. Like uh, people ask me, oh, are you a prison abolitionist? And I'm like, well, well, it's not that simple. You know, there are a small percentage of, you know, quite violent people that unfortunately just can't function well outside for one reason or another. But I mean, I was sent to a working camp prison, which didn't even have a fence around it. We just, at one point we had a yellow line painted on the ground that we weren't allowed to step over. And it costs $109,000 a year to keep someone in prison in Australia. And I'm like, there's got to be a better use of taxpayers' money than, you know, spending $109,000 to put me in a, a prison, which A, doesn't have a fence and B, doesn't like, have any well there was no education or rehabilitation or anything like that and I was assessed as being such a low threat to the community that I didn't need a fence to contain me so so what why am I here what what purpose is this serving you know like I think they should get rid of minimum security prisons and they should just have community service and like uh, like a high security prisons should exist purely for people who are violent or people who are you know just repeatedly couldn't get on on board with like a community program where they're actually giving something back but I mean I think that's a yeah very tall order, and I don't expect that'll happen any like, anytime soon. There's just uh, not a lot, of, not enough people care about the situation, unfortunately. I mean, as humans, we're very you need the emergency. Like we wait to the very, the very dire end of something, and then and then we then we respond. You know, in America, you can see America's like their prison system is extremely punitive, and you know their prison rates are substantially high. And it's been like that for a very, very long time. But now where it's dire, they're saying to, okay, now we should probably do something about it. Not not to mention there's been so many lives just completely ruined for, you know, generations and generations. Still, it's like, okay, well, now we've got to do something about it. So then now you see some of the philanthropists investing big money into prison reform. You know, some of their big philanthropic groups are, I think the Zan, uh, Chan Zuckerberg initiative, I think yes. they recently was $330 million. Yeah, there's been various others. And just part of this project that I did for the corrections, looked overseas at some of the programs that are happening over there, and they're, they're fantastic programs over there. You know, they haven't found the silver bullet yet, but like in California, you can you can do underwater underwater welding. Um, you can get qualified for that and get a job. You sure that. can't do that in New South Wales. I can tell. It's hard <laughs> enough to get on a regular welding course. Yes. It was broken. True story. I um I went in and I started in um Ramand at Tamworth, and I had the option to stay there if I wanted to. I could have put a request in rather, but I didn't because um yeah. the only course they had there was a statement of attainment in welding. Yeah, my sentence was like ten months, and by the time I even found out the course existed, I had nine and a half months to go. And the um the wait time to get on the course combined with how long the course uh, took to complete meant that I wouldn't be able to complete the course. I, I, I would be released yeah. before. I, and um, like, I'm like, there's no opportunities here. So I put my name to go somewhere else in search of greener pastors. And uh, I mean, Glen Innes, where they end up sending me what was at least a nicer, you know, it didn't have fence for starters. But I mean, yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah, very um, 
hard to find something constructive to do in there sometimes. And it's just, a, it's a shame there aren't more uh, like options for inmates to do constructive things. And just even from a financial perspective, it's interesting talking to someone else who's looked into like research about prison as well, because so the RAND Corporation in America did a massive study on the financial impact of education programs in prison. And, and they found that um, for every dollar we spend on prison education, it saves taxpayers four to five dollars from the cost of reincarcerating people. And I, and I don't even think that equation factors in like the additional savings to the community from, uh, you know, inmates who get jobs after release. They're not relying on welfare. They're paying taxes because they're employed. I think that's just the cost from not having to reincarcerate people because they were able to get a job. It, it does boggle the mind sometimes why there's just the government clearly hasn't made it a priority to rehabilitate and reintegrate people. We've, we've got a warehousing system and it's, um, don't have to tell you this, it's really frustrating that they just they just warehouse people till they get out and then they expect them to pick up their lives with, with hardly any support. What, what I advise corrections to do as part of the project, as I said, when it comes to prison industries, you need to take a facilitation approach. So you, you know, don't just provide laundry services for your other government organisations because the skills aren't transferable. What you need to do is look overseas and invite the commercial sector to work within the prisons, you know, strike deals, create higher business development managers who put these deals together and get people to work in the prisons, uh, manufacture in the prisons or train in the prisons, and then that'll bridge that gap. So these people will be getting skills that are driven by the needs of the commercial sector as opposed to just whatever makes, you know, a bit cheaper for your um, budget, you know, laundry and stuff like that. That is the way to think. Like, you think like that, like, corrections, stick to doing what you do, housing, but then you allow the not-for-profit sector to, to bring welfare services in. Um, you allow the commercial sector to bring, um, to work within the prisons, train within the prisons, because there's jobs out there that they're sectors that have skill shortages, but by the time the government identifies them, if they even bother, and then, you know, implement training to the prisons, it's already over, like the sector's over. Like it's not, it needs to be sort of up-to-date skills. Thinking like that, sort of, I guess you could call it, say, an integrated prison system where you're, you're thinking about, okay, we have housing, but we need to, we need to have an, as much um, space to allow, you know, people to run health programs, mental health programs and employment programs and training programs as much as we need space for housing these people. If they could think like that, these recidivism rates for these programs are a third of what we're currently experiencing. And if you look back from 2009 to 2019, prison population in Queensland has gone up three times that of the general population. So mm. we're on a trajectory where the problem's going to get so bad that it won't be able to be managed. And these sort of things won't, will be harder to do, you know, and, that was very interesting, like that way of thinking and, and seeing what's happening overseas. There's a company called Timson over in the UK who hire 10% of their workforce, which is a workforce of 5,000, straight from the prisons. So that's 500 prisoners they have in their workforce at any one time. And what's happening now is people are seeing that and then they're thinking about it. Okay, well, how does, where are our labour shortages? Where are our skill shortages? What, what can we do? to, you know, help these disadvantaged people and other people are starting to do it and it's sort of creating an effect and that that sort of thinking and allowing of people to work in the prisons acts as an advocacy vehicle for prisoners because at the moment it's just 
like I, whenever my nephew's naughty, I put him in the quiet spot, you know, for a minute. <laughs> and um, that's all prison is. It's, it's, it is. It's like a quiet spot. Like I described it to someone once. It's, it's the adult equivalent of go sit in the corner and think about what you did. Except there's 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 no one to you know give you any like reflection or help you think about it. So I mean, if if you don't want to uh, rethink your life, you you you'll just go chase after cigarettes or or something. And you know there's they put people in there like oh like well hopefully they fix themselves. And I mean some of them do. Oh I'd already made the decision to turn my life around while I was on bail. But I mean yeah, there's uh, a lot of people need a hand up and that uh, to, to to get better. They're they're just not motivated enough or they've just had too many previous failures and they don't believe themselves and and they don't get that hand up they just get um other people surrounded by other people that uh, you know have um uh, low self-control and may and, uh, and things like that as well and then and it just uh you know it's this echo chamber and keep feeding off each other and and, and uh, the reality is a lot of most of them don't get better as, as you know yeah it's just it's that cycle you know and there are i mean there are people who you know they don't want to rehabilitate they're happy to go in and out of prison because their life is so bad on the outside. They don't three meals and, and shelter there is better than being homeless out here. I, I did. But notice. it is a small percentage. Yeah, and a, and a lot like nearly everyone in there will think to themselves, you know, I want something different. I'm sick of this life. Like they will think that, and if maybe it's not for them, maybe it's for their family or their children. You know, they want to do different for them. But a lot of them just, you know, there's no opportunity to do anything. You know they're powerless, they're oppressed. You know it's it's really it's sad, but and it won't change until the prison system changes. Like it's supposed to be a rehabilitation standard, but yeah, come on. Yeah. You know let's let's be realistic about what it is. It's a one-stop shop for social problems. You know we don't want to deal with it. You go to prison. Your circumstances become too desperate. You do something wrong, you go to prison. Like it's just not the way. Like you know things need to change. They definitely do. Yes, it was broken. So is there anything else uh, you wanted to talk about specifically, Richard? Like, do you ever reflect about the stages and the stuff you went through, like, say, growing up there, you ended into prison? My crime did have a lot to do. I had everything to do with my childhood. I, I had a lot of trauma that I was carrying. And then someone close to me um, told me that she'd been sexually assaulted and that just dragged up all the childhood trauma that I'd been trying my hardest to bury, not very well, arguably. And um, yeah, she completely, uh, unintentionally, it wasn't her fault, but she re-traumatized me by by telling me that I was the wrong person to confide in. And um, I, yeah, went nuts, really. And I I went and targeted that guy. And um, yeah, the the magistrate called me a vigilante, which is essentially what happened. I, I went to get vigilante justice because we couldn't get any... Basically, I needed therapy. I needed to talk to someone. And, and I started doing that when I was on bail. And I was getting really better. And then I, I, I went into the prison system. and I had a mandatory appointment with the prison psychologist. And I said to her, like, oh, look, I was getting therapy on bail. And it was really good to talk about what happened to me as a child. And I found, like, it's a really good improvement. And I'd like to continue with the therapy. And here, I think I'd really benefit from it. And she smiled really sadly. And she said, Damien, everyone in here would benefit from therapy, but but there's no funding for that, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, my job yeah, is just to make yeah. sure people aren't uh, suicidal or planning to escape or you're dangerous, and it's, it's very frustrating. And that, that's the thing, like, there was nothing constructive for me to do in prison. 
because I couldn't study and yeah. there was no rehabilitation. And, and so that's what I wrote a novel. And I mean, at the risk of sounding elitist, uh, not a lot of people in there aren't literate enough to do that. But also uh, a lot of yeah. them wouldn't be like, uh, like motivated enough. You know, I have strengths and weaknesses like everyone and, and I've always been a very self-motivated person. And, uh, but you know, a lot of people do need a push in the right direction and they don't get that at all. Yeah, I, I really love hearing other people's stories and, you know, and you, you reflect on like how you got there. Like mine was sort of a generational trauma thing. You know, Dad went to prison when I was young. You know, he was never in the picture after that, moved over to Australia. When we were young, mum was quite young when she had me. She was 15, very rough area in New Zealand. But, like, I had no father around. And the first, like, male role model I had in my life was a pot dealer. Right. And, um, and I only thought about this the other day. And, like, he was, like, a father figure to me because I, I was always, you know, I was vulnerable to um, potential father figures, you know, because I was looking for the one that I was missing. And um, he was a pot dealer. And then it sort of, he didn't involve in drugs, sort of stemmed from there. And it was really like fascinating reflecting on this. And, and now I think about like mentors, you know, like, you know, need good mentors in the world, you know, and how can we sort of create that? Because they have such an important role and they can have such an important role on a youth's life just simply by, you know, the type of mentor that comes into your life. And it was very interesting. I, I'm doing Toastmasters now just in case I want to, like I'm studying law as well. So just in case I want to be embarrassed when I speak, you know, very fluently, but I did my speech and told about how I'd been to prison and, and that, you know, my first mentor was a pot dealer. And then the guy after me, he did a speech about how good his mentors were and they got him into football and, you know, he's now a successful businessman and all that sort of stuff. And it was so like, I don't know what you believe in, the universe or, or whatever. It was so interesting that those two speeches come one after the other and it really demonstrated how important mentors are in our life. Yes. You know, and, and the effect that these people have on us. Yeah, it's interesting to hear a, bit, a little bit about your story. Um, but like my father was from uh, New Zealand as well. I don't know a lot about his childhood, but I, I do know he was arrested shortly after the age of 10. And he was in like uh, the Borstal system, which was like the precursor to juvenile detention for several years. And when he got out, he just wanted to get out of New Zealand. He, he came straight to Australia. I believe he was 18 at the time. 18 and he'd already been in jail for several years he yeah. was a very angry human being he died about 15 yeah. years ago he's not here anymore growing up with him was really challenging he had a lot of anger issues he he didn't know how to raise a child and he was the only like male role model i had i actually read somewhere once like you know you're six times more likely to go to prison if one of your parents has been to prison and I mean, that's yeah. generally not because they're encouraging you into a life of crime. It's because they're showing you, they're teaching you how to behave during your formative years. And, and the only way he dealt yeah. with any of his problems with, was with anger. And so when I found yeah. out, you know, when this, this person told me she'd been raped, I was like, well, I'm going to solve this with violence because that's how you fix things. It's been a really interesting journey and I'm actually really happy uh, with where I am now. And uh, also I'm, I, I'm happy with what I got out of prison. You know, I, I wrote my my novel in there and then after I wrote that I taught myself to draw and now I've got a really good illustration contract and um, I wouldn't change anything but that being said like sometimes I do wonder if I had a, what, what, what my life would have been like if I had been raised in a you know white middle class family with no domestic violence like 
where would I be now? And, and you know, I, I have a master's degree. I'm quite bright. Sometimes I think, well, maybe I'd be the CEO of a company and maybe I'd just be a spoiled brat who didn't really appreciate the you know, value <laughs> things that uh, like I do now. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't change it, but I, I'd definitely be interested to know if there was a way to find out. I always say that played up in our 20s, most of the people, like I'm nearly 40 now, most of the people our age are having midlife crises. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah I've, worked my, I've worked my whole life. I'm, I'm terribly bored. I'm divorced. I'm going to go and do something stupid. Yeah. So we, we did all the stupid stuff younger. So yes, you, <laughs> we, well, that's, we got yeah. our midlife crisis out of the way. <laughs> I've never thought about it like that. That, 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 that is a way of putting it though. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. I think I'll use that in the, in the, in the future. <laughs> Maybe in a job interview. Yeah, so yeah, that hire me. I, I might have had a criminal, might have a criminal record, but I already got my, all my crisis out of the way early. Yeah, yeah. But it's true. Like it's the it's the hard times that allows you to really like now. I appreciate the small things. I see the green grass. I hear the wind blow through the trees. I appreciate my nephew and you know and 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 family. Even though you know the foster family and all that sort of stuff, like I appreciate it. And you know when you've been in a bad spot. Jail, slept on the streets, addicted to drug down yourself. Like you really, you get an appreciation of small things, and that's something that only experience can buy. So in a way, you know, it's been a hard journey for both of us, but there is a silver lining there if, if you can. Think oh, that way, yeah, you know I mean? yeah, definitely. You, you, I mean, yeah, you have to really. I, like, I went into prison, yeah. and, and I was like, oh, "Well, they're not going to let me do anything constructive," and I, I and I freaked out for a little bit. And I'm like, "Okay." Okay, well, what can I do in here? And then that's why I, I started writing. And but uh, yeah, I was just like, all right, yeah, I could be, I could just feel sorry for myself and be depressed, or I could see the opportunity here. And I, it was an opportunity because I'm like, well, hopefully, I never get another ten months quiet time because, uh, yeah, I'd always wanted yeah. to write that, book, but I never made the time because life was just, you know, like throwing too many things at me. And I was like, well, I got nothing else to do, so so great, you know. I, it was actually, yeah. it was only about after about eight months in prison. That I was like, all right, I, I, I've got everything I can out of this. I want to go now. It didn't really work like that. So, um, but uh, yeah, like I, I was actually like for eight months, I was like, this is actually working out for me because I'm, I'm kicking goals that I wouldn't have if I had access to the distractions and you know, of, of even just things like trying to make rent. Completely agree and understand. And, you know, sometimes there's just that positive mindset that can really push you through, you know. It's a cliche, but I one of my um my favorite sayings is life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit corny, but I mean, it's absolutely true from, from my experience. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on the program today. It's been uh, really good talking to you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Damon. I appreciate it. I look forward to chatting to you in the future at the group and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, that'd be great. But she was no more broken than a spear with a chipped blade. Marks like those were signs of strength. Marks like those were signs of signs of strength. Thanks for listening to Broken Chains. Broken Chains is hosted by myself, Damien Lenane, and is produced by Newcastle Libraries. Music is provided by Louisa Magrix. Check out more of her work at soundcloud.com forward slash music LXM. On the next episode of Broken Chains, we're going to be talking about mental health in prison, the ways prison impacts on mental health and how people cope with being incarcerated. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to smile and we'll see you next time. Dines of strength.
paradigms of strength. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real production. As a companion to this podcast series, the exhibition of Broken Chains, Prisoners Unlocking Potential, is available to view until the 7th of November 2021. You can experience this exhibition either online through the Newcastle Libraries website or in person at Walls End Library. COVID health orders and restrictions may affect access across our branches, so please check before planning your visit. Links to the exhibition and research for the topics discussed in this episode are in the show notes.